The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, a senior writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us. So it's Tech's Biggest Earnings Week at this week, and it is my pleasure to have Michael Lippert on the show today. Michael is Head of Technology Research at Barron Funds and Portfolio Manager of the Barron Opportunity Fund. He's also Co-Portfolio Manager of the Barron Technology Fund. Welcome, Mike. Thank you for having me, Lauren. So I really appreciate you taking uh, time to chat with us this week with all that you've got going on. Uh, we've got lots of ground to cover, so I'm just going to dive right in. You've managed the Barron Opportunity Fund since 2006. And for listeners who may be interested in taking a closer look, uh, let me just tell you that the fund's ticker for the retail share class is B-I-O-T-X. And to make that easier, that is uh, B is in Bravo, I is in India, O is in Oscar, P is in Papa, and X is in X-Ray. The fund is approaching about a billion dollars of assets under management. It's an active, high-conviction fund. When we were chatting, you know, before, you've told me that you start with sort of the right secular trends and the right characteristics in a company. So just unpack that for the audience. What are the secular trends you're investing in? And what are the characteristics you're looking for in the companies that you're buying? Yeah, those are great questions. And, um, you know, try to simplify it. I mean, if you're going to be a growth investor, um, you should start out by simply looking for where the growth is happening. Um, and our style at Barron is we're very long-term focused investors. So we're investing in longer-term trends. They're often called secular trend to distinguish them from cyclical trends. Cyclical tr trends can be the up and downs of, you know, of the economy, can be the up and downs of interest rates. Um, can be other, you know, more short-term things like whether we're constructing a lot of, you know, new facilities or it's a slowdown in construction. The kind of trends that we're thinking about are, I often talk about them as generational tectonic shifts. They're big things. They're undeniable. The fact that we've identified them is not what makes us different as investors. Um, they're going to play out for a very, very long time. Anyone who's gone to business school understands that, you know, the S curve where whether it's a company, a business itself or an industry trend takes a little while to get off the ground. Some never get lift off. Uh, once they do, they inflect and you have a long period of steep growth, which is high growth. And then everything eventually slows down and matures. Um, so we try to find the big trends that are on that steep part of the S curve. We try to identify S curves or trends that will last for a very, very long time. By long time, I'm talking about 10 years plus. Um, and certainly, you know, we will exit those trends or lessen our investments against, against those trends as they mature. Um, the ones that we are emphasizing in our portfolios are you know, anyone who reads about technology or, or reads about what's going on in the industries will say, yes, I've heard of them. So it's things like artificial intelligence, um, it's electric vehicles, it's genetics and healthcare, it's cloud computing, 
and you know various layers of cloud computing, whether it's cybersecurity, software as a service, it's things like that. These are big and undeniable trends. And then of course, we have to find the businesses, individual businesses to invest in that are either the ones that are driving these trends or sometimes the ones that are really being carried along by these trends. And they also have special characteristics that will allow them um, to grow faster and for longer than you know most in the market believe. So that's one of your mantras, right? Grow faster, longer. Have I pulled <laughs> that correctly? Yes, that is one of my mantras. Like uh, um, in terms of communicating, you know, with our investors, you know, um, and even communicating, you know, to my colleagues now that uh, you know I'm, I was once a young guy, now that I'm one of the older guys. Um, you know, faster for longer. Um, I think anyone listening to this podcast today, when you think about the great companies, the household names, um, what distinguishes them? What made them great businesses? What made them great investments? It's really simple. They grew faster for longer than anyone believed. Now you have to get inside of that. What makes a company able to grow faster for longer? But you know, just think about Amazon, for example. You know, it started life as an online bookseller. We were worried about competition with Barnes and Noble. Um, then it became, and it took years and years before it became you know, the so-called everything store. You can find every product. It then differentiated not just on the assortment, not just on price, but what you might call logistics or delivery, right? Getting product to your door the next day or now the same day. 50% of US households have Amazon Prime. But today, when you think about Amazon, more than half of its value comes from what's called AWS, Amazon Web Services, where Amazon is now the leading provider um, in the world of cloud computing and one of the most, if not the most influential um, businesses in the information technology world. And so one of the things that we look at when we think about faster for longer, you know, can a company take a single product or service and have multiple? Can they do not only a first act, can they do a second or third act? And the best companies are the ones that literally become what you call platforms. And, you know, those kind of companies would be the Amazons, Googles, Microsofts of, of the world where they built, you know, real distinct technology, real distinct user bases, and they can add on top of that those things, which gives them an advantage against other companies that might be launching, you know, some new product or service simply as a feature. They have to, you know, compete with a behemoth in terms of brand and how many different customers they touch. And some of the ones I named, you know, when you think about Microsoft or you think about Amazon, they not only have expensive user bases in, you know, um, the business side, you know, enterprises, they also have obviously massive consumer user bases and they're able to leverage both of those things. So this year, there's been a lot of discussion about AI, and you mentioned it as one of those generational tectonic shifts um, that you're investing against. Uh, you've also written about AI. One of the things you wrote recently was that the AI evolution will, and I'm going to quote here, disrupt many industries, strengthening some businesses and weakening others. So in the sort of AI race, uh, who are some of the winners and some are, who are some of the losers? And perhaps some of the names in terms of the winners that we don't necessarily think about out in front who may be staying to win down the road. Yeah, so um, it's a great question. It, it, we can talk for a very, very long time. I'll try to give a, a brief answer. Um, then you can please you know, ask me follow-ups and any listeners that want to you know, dig in with more questions. Um, one of the ways that we explain AI, I've done it in my letters, we've done it on our website so people can find the materials, 
or to simplify or what you call the layers. Um, I'm not going to name them all here, but you know, the lowest layer may be the, the key infrastructure. Um, first one is probably the semiconductor chips on which AI models are trained and in which you do what's called inferencing, which is actually trying to get the answers out of an AI model. The next layer up might be a cloud computing vendor in AWS or Microsoft Azure. You know, where are you going to put these chips and where are you going to put the models? There's the models, there's the data, there's the ultimate applications, and there's different things happening at these, um, you know, different layers. Um, I'd say at the very, very base layer, um, probably the biggest winner um, so far, and which we do believe will be a big winner long-term, um, is NVIDIA. Um, because the chips that have run the computing age that you know, most of us have either grown up in or are now living in um, has been dominated by mostly Intel with 80% market share. The number two player is AMD, and those are called CPUs, um, central processing units. Um, and they were able to do calculations really, really fast. Um, Moore's law making them faster and faster and faster, but they did them in a serialized fashion, one at a time. Um, the GPU, where NVIDIA is the dominant player, also known as an accelerated computing chip, does what's called parallel processing. It does a number of different mathematical equations, so to speak, at once, and then it puts them all together. It's called the GPU, which stands for graphic graphical processing unit, because the first application was in video graphics, you know, mostly video game graphics, basically putting thousands of pixels on a screen at once and doing all the calculations to make each pixel exactly what it needs to be, and then change, you know, in milliseconds to become the next thing. And that type of technology really, really plays well um, with AI. The type of calculations and math that are involved in training a large language or transformer model. So NVIDIA is definitely one of the winners. We do think at the next layer, um, it'll be the cloud computing vendors because that's where you are going to build um, your AI infrastructure. Um, and, and we can go very, very deep there. Um, at, the, at the very top layer is obviously application companies, right? The consumer applications that we deal with every single day. And that could be search, it could be e-commerce, um, it could be finding a hotel, um, the business applications, such as the software that people use in their business every day. You know, it could be the salesforce.coms um, for what they, you know, what we call CRM, customer relationship management software. It could be a workday for human um, resources or financial software. Um, and there are many, many, many others. We do think that if the large companies that already have all these touch points with users, both consumers and, and business customers, and they have a lot of data, consumer data, e-commerce data, search data, um, you know, customer data for the uh, um, enterprise software companies that can train their models to be very good at specific use cases. We think there's a good chance for them to win. And so, for example, Microsoft is rolling, they basically brand named all their AI products co-pilot. And so when you think about having a co-pilot, when you're you know, drafting an email, the co-pilot can do a first draft of the email. Or if you have a long report and you want to summarize it in Word, your co-pilot can do a summary. And that just really makes sense for lots of people. And Microsoft will have the first chance to win this because they have all these touch points, you know, for example, with Microsoft um, Office. If they don't 
innovate, however, somebody, of course, can and will disrupt them. So we're going to come back to Microsoft in a few moments, but just a quick reminder to the audience, if you have questions for Michael, please submit them in the Q&A feature, and I'll leave some time at the end for the audience Q&A. So let's talk about some of the stocks in your portfolio, and your top five includes, I think it's at least five of the, the so-called Magnificent Seven, so Microsoft, NVIDIA, Tesla, Amazon, and Meta. And maybe we can start with Tesla since uh, the company reported earnings last week and there was a, a lot of headlines about Tesla. It was a gloomy investor call, you know, the stock tanked. I, I take it you're still very bullish on the secular trend of EVs and Tesla stock in the long term. Yes, um, we are. And, you know, when, you, when people think about stocks tanking, I even joke about it with my kids. They know their dad is an investor. Like, yep, every investor wants stocks to go up and to the right. And we all want it kind of Goldilocks markets or Goldilocks stocks. You go up a little, you go up a little, you go up a little. Just think about human beings, right? And the market is made up of human beings. It just never works that way. So stocks go up, they go up a little too much, they correct, they go up. Um, as I said earlier, we're, you know, we're long-term investors. So our, our biggest focus is literally going from the so-called point A, right? The initial time of our investment, um, you know, to the point, you know, B, which, I guess will be the end of our investment and what we can make on that. There are definitely traders out there in the market who are excellent at trading the ups and downs. That's not what we try to do. So yeah, Tesla had a pullback recently, but when you look at it year to date, it's up 76%, literally as I'm looking at my, my computer right now. So it's had a pretty good year. Maybe it got a little bit of ahead of itself. Okay, that, that happens. Um, we really focus, as I said, on the long term. The long term is there are 90 to 100 million cars sold per year. Um, one day, those will mostly all be electric. Uh, we can debate it all, but electric vehicles are, are, are literally just, they're superior to gasoline power. Even if you want, you don't want to think about, you know, the green and environmental impact, which we definitely do think about, and we think it's a good thing, but they're just better cars. They're more efficient machines. Um, an EV is much more like a computer on wheels than an internal combustion engine car, which gives the EV you know, another set of significant advantages, which the car in your garage overnight can improve, and Tesla's already um, done that. Um, Tesla has a significant lead. Um, even though their profits are down, um, they're generating you know, a significant amount of cash flow. They generate positive gross margins down from the higher level that they had a couple of years ago. We could talk about the cyclical inputs and that, but I don't think there's another company in the world that is actually making money. And EV is the only one, maybe BYD in China, but Ford's not, GM's not, none of the, you know, none of the other ones are. Um, Tesla is innovating at an incredibly fast rate. Um, others are having trouble catching up. Um, we know that the U.S. automakers, for example, even before the UAW strike, um, were pulling back on their on their EV investments. Now that might be the right thing to do right now, right? They may generate you know better earnings for a couple of quarters by decreasing EV investments and selling more ICE cars. But where are they going to be in the next couple of years? So I think the competitive environment has actually gotten better for Tesla than than worse. Um, Tesla sitting on twenty six billion dollars of cash effectively no debt. People worried about them going bankrupt a few years ago. That's obviously um, not going to happen. As I said, with the innovation, um, 
you know, one of the things Elon talked about was, you know, how challenging it is to make Cybertruck, um, how the scale up of Cybertruck will be slow because there are so many innovations in that. It will take them a while. It may take them a year or two to scale up to their goal of selling 250,000 units. But when they do that and they have, you know, perfected may be the wrong word, but, you know, are able to um, build these new technologies effectively at high speeds in a profitable way, how are others going to catch up to them? And we know right now that the big unlock, I think, for electric vehicle penetration and for Tesla will be what they call the next generation car. Um, some call it the Model 2, although our understanding is that it will not be branded Model 2. I do not know what it will be branded. We can all wait to see. But that is effectively a, a, a car that the goal is, you know, um, the cost to make will be around $20,000, maybe $25,000. And it will sell from somewhere thirty dollars to $35,000. And it will completely open up this um, the EV market. Um, they're working on differentiating not only the car, but how the car is made, which they, they talked about and people can um, take a look at at their, at their recent analyst day. Um, so there's so many factors. Of course, even innovative companies, even companies that are doing, you know, secular growth, things like, you know, EVs, you know, replacing internal combustion engine cars, every business is cyclical. And there's no doubt that right now, Tesla, as well as every auto company, you know, are facing um, cyclical you know, headwinds. So that's what they're going through now. Elon talked about a lot on the call, um, on different calls, you know, depending upon, you know, what's in Elon's head. He's a very straight shooter. He will talk about what's in his head, you know, right at that moment. Um, on the next call, it could, be, it could be very different. So I would urge um, people that are following Tesla or investing in Tesla not to overreact to a single earnings call. And then I'm just going to touch on, you can follow up. There are so many other things that Tesla's working on and so many other, you know, major changes that are going on in automotive and, and, and other spaces. And, um, you know, when you think about the future of Tesla, um, what they're doing with their own AI, which is, you know, autopilot or full self-driving is, is in, in incredibly powerful. And I do believe the future world will not just be people buying cars and driving themselves, but will literally be human beings, people, you know, subscribing to or buying services, you know, like Uber. Um, but, you know, there won't have to be a driver in, in, in the future. And, and that will be the major change and the major unlock. And, and Tesla's doing a lot of work. And um, I think we'll end up being one of the leaders when we get to that world as well. Let's stick with EVs just for, for a minute more. I, I'm curious, the fund also has a small stake in Rivian, I believe. So just give us an update on how Rivian is faring compared to all the news around Tesla. Yeah, so um, you, we, we've thought of for a long time as Rivian um, as the little brother or little sister of Tesla. I hope if anyone from Rivian <laughs> listens to this, they take that in the positive sense, not in the negative sense. Um, We've been doing work at our firm on, on the electric vehicle EV space, you know, since it began. Um, we have honestly talked to every single company that's an EV innovator, as well as the, you know, large automakers that want to have EV divisions. Um, our second pure play EV investment has been Rivian. We passed on everybody else. Now, at the time, however, that Rivian went public, they basically got hit by the perfect storm of you know, the, the, the end of COVID, supply chain disruptions with semiconductor stocks, um, you know, a period of inflation like we haven't seen, 
um, in 50 years, and that absolutely hurt them. But what we're seeing now is, you know, I believe, and I've said it in my quarterly letter, so I put it in writing that, you know, we think there's uh, has been an inflection in their execution on their roadmap, um, again, to simplify both in, in terms of them rolling out their own proprietary technologies, including new and updated battery pack using different technology than the original one, um, a motor that's internally developed and, and internally built um, that gives them a lot more flexibility, certainly um, in the semiconductor supply chain. Um, we've seen it in the unit level economics of their cars. They're still um, losing money on each car, but it's getting better and better every single quarter. And um, like Tesla, they're a fast innovator. And I think the big unlock for Rivian will be their next generation cars. They're selling, you know, $75,000, $85,000 somewhere in that gap today. Um, the market for that is, you know, let's call it 100,000 cars. Um, their next platform is called R2. Those will be vehicles more akin to the Model 3s and Model Ys of the world. And that will open up a, a very big market. And again, when we think about it, um, we honestly think, um, more strong players, you know, building compelling EVs will actually tip the market faster. I mean, in some of our conversations with Tesla, they actually bemoan their competitors, meaning they want the <laughs> their competitors to make better cars because they do think that will cause people to adopt EVs faster. And in the world where EVs are adopted, they do believe they're going to be a winner. So, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, Tesla doesn't want GM or Ford to make compelling cars. The actual, the opposite is actually true. Tesla thinks they're going to make far superior cars, but they want a little help in, in, in tipping this market. We we do think, you know, Rivian will be a player in helping uh, to tip this market for the long term. And so um, people can say, hey, these are where the, we, we think about businesses and we think where they're going to be in the long term. And we think, we spend a lot of time when we think about like an EV car company and what we call the unit level economics. And we understand these companies will lose money at the beginning. Um, and as they scale, that will turn. And so we've seen it turn with Tesla and we believe it will turn for Rivian as well. Great. I mentioned in the setup that it's a big week for tech company earnings, You know, some of which you own tonight, uh, Google Parent Alphabet and Microsoft both report earnings. Uh, earlier today, my colleague Eric Savitz had a story on Microsoft. I just want to read you his setup and get your thoughts on that. He says, there's little debate on Wall Street that Microsoft will be a long-term winner from the move toward artificial intelligence. But as for when generative AI could materially boost the company's financial performance, that remains a matter of considerable debate. So any thoughts on that question or that debate? And just generally tonight, what will you be looking for? What will you be listening for with Microsoft? Yeah. Well, um, honestly, that's true, right? Um, if you're a long-term investor and you've identified the companies that you believe will be the big winners because they have significant competitive advantages. They have the right um, products and services. They have the right product market fit. They have the right go-to-market approach. Um, you realize you may not know the exact timing, but you don't need to know that exact timing to be a great investor and find a great investment. If you're a trader, however, tr not traitor, trader, <laughs> if I mispronounce that, you have to know the exact moment. Um, Microsoft is participating in AI and going after AI in a number of ways. 
Um, certainly there's their investment in open AI. Um, there's their Microsoft Azure services, which is their infrastructure as a service business, um, where companies will be building AI applications on top of Microsoft, not only using Microsoft's physical infrastructure, but also using, you know, for example, ChatGPT, large language models, and building on top of that, as well as many other tools that Microsoft themselves have and will be offering to their customers to help them build their own AI applications. That will be done in Azure. You will see that in the Azure revenue. The other side of Microsoft, of course, is the world's biggest software company. And I mentioned that, like rolling out Copilot. Copilot right now is even in the beta stage. They've just started rolling out the first functions. Um, one of them is a function to help you um, develop software. Basically, you can, you know, speak to the software in English and the software will, will then therefore then generate code. Um, the initial findings is all that you're seeing, you know, 30 to 40 percent um, productivity improvements among developers. But the Office Copilot suite hasn't even rolled out yet. Um, so what people will be looking for tonight will certainly be um, the Azure results the actual numbers that Microsoft will print, um, whether or not that business is stabilizing for a period of, you know, that a lot of these cloud vendors have experienced, which is, and the keyword has been optimization. You know, lots of business customers that, you know, went to the cloud very, very fast and certainly moved there um, at, you know, top speed during COVID are now optimizing their workloads that are on the cloud. Um, which is one of the advantages of the cloud, not a disadvantage. They'll optimize and then they will, you know, start investing again. So people are really, really focused on that. I think, um, you know, stabilization in the Azure revenue base will be very good. Uh, Microsoft will probably talk about the AI contribution that they're seeing in the Azure business. People will be listening to that. And certainly investors will also be very, very focused on their rollout um, of AI across their broad software suite. So those are things people will be looking for tonight. Great, I have one more question. I actually have lots more questions. So I want to squeeze <laughs> one more of mine before I get to the audience questions. We've spoken a lot about you know stocks that you do own, but I'm also just as curious, I'm sure the audience is curious about uh, two of the big seven that you don't currently own. And if I remember correctly, these are both Netflix and Apple. You did own those in the past. You don't own them at the moment. Um, just very briefly, why? Yeah, at a, at a very you know simple level, because I can go in deep, and you know I'll certainly recognize over the last couple of years, for example, not owning Apple, um, you know, has been a mistake. Um, I think Apple has an unbelievable ecosystem, right? They're a platform company. You know, billion you know people on the iOS platform. But it's not a high growth company anymore, right? I mean, it's it's a single digit grower. Um, smartphones are uh, effectively fully penetrated, um, and and the smartphone market is, you know, a replacement market. Um, a, a lot of Apple's growth is coming from services, um, but you know their their leadership in services has mostly been, you know, in you know literally like iCloud backup and some other things. You know, when you think about Apple Music, it certainly trailed and far trails Spotify. Um, when you think about, you know, other services, now you have Apple TV, it trails Netflix. And so I, I for, for us, Apple stopped, you know, and, and certainly, you know, uh, the passing of Steve Jobs, I think had a big impact, um, is an, 
Apple is a great company. There's no doubt about it. They've done an unbelievable job generating lots of cash and buying back um, a lot of stocks. So there's been a financial engineering aspect to it, but I don't mean financial engineering in the pejorative. It just helped their earnings growth. But it's not a it's not a fast top line grower. Um, and the innovation out of Apple, every everyone's you know seen what it's been. It's been much more incremental over the last um, several years. So we we focus more on the more innovative companies. When it comes to um, Netflix, we, we've um, had investments in Netflix and at times have done very, very well in our investment. Um, I think there's now a tipping point in, you know, streaming um, and streaming is going to win from, you know, so-called legacy TV, you know, the old TV guy, what are you going to watch at eight o'clock? Um, but there's massive competition in streaming. Um, and it's not only competition from the old media companies, but from companies like Apple, which I mentioned, Amazon, which we mentioned earlier, um, Google um, in different ways, where um, they can lose money in streaming because streaming um, you know, helps another part of their business. And I just think that you know, th that becomes you know, uh, a pretty challenging backdrop. There's no doubt, I believe, that um, Netflix will be the winner in streaming. The stock did well off their last quarter because they beat street subs. Um, I've known Netflix for a long time. When they beat subs, the stock goes up. When they miss subs, the stock goes down. In any one quarter, it's, it's really, really hard um, to call um, subscriber growth. But it, it, Netflix, while a, a great company, probably the streaming leader, um, really has a you know a, a, a um, very challenging and very competitive um, you know competitive environment to use that word twice and I just would urge everyone like think about how you are when you watch TV like I know in my own house like we love Netflix we watch a lot of Netflix but we watch the show right we don't watch the service we watch the show um, and so that's what most people do um, I, you know when people talking about the show to watch they'll be like oh you should watch you know uh, I'll say blah blah blah. So I don't have to <laughs> name anything. And then you're like, oh, what's that on? Is it on Netflix? Is it Amazon? Is that on Apple? And so that's the world that we live in today. Um, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. I'm going to pivot now to some audience so questions. We, go um, ahead. So just to make the, the yeah. last point, like you know, we listen. We're not always right, but we try to invest in companies that we really think are differentiated and have um, you know competitive advantages and. Um, I, I, I do think Netflix was the pioneer. We've invested in that company for many, 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 many years, but the competitive environment and streaming and media is what it is today. Great. So Kevin has a question and uh, Kevin says, it seems EV pricing is going down, not only at Tesla, but others as well. How long of an impact will this have on margins and profitability? It seems this may add years to net profits being enough to really add to the equity value of these companies. It's going to take high numbers of sales for these companies to make a decent profit. Listen, um, there's no doubt that given the economic headwinds that Tesla and others um, have chosen to lower pricing um, to make the cars price more competitively. Often um, today, if you will look at an EV, um, you know, versus a similar ICE car, and certainly with the uh, you know tax rebates you get from what's called the you know the IRA, um, Inflation Reduction Act, um, the EVs are are, are cheaper. Um, now, Tesla took the short-term pain um, to their margins and their profits to increase EV penetration 
but also because um, they believe, and I think they will prove out in the next couple of years, that the car um, through technology can be made to be much, much more um, valuable. And so while others, I don't think can play that game. Um, and that is basically um, full self-driving technology, allowing that car to be part of, you know, what is called a robo-taxi network. So I believe some consumers will contribute their car to a network, like people contributed their home or a room in their home to Airbnb, and some won't. But, you know, some will have a three-year-old car and be able to sell it at a, at a very good price to um, someone who was willing to put their car in the network or someone, you know, Tesla themselves or other players that will, you know, simply own the cars on the network. But but Tesla will be the technology provider and you're talking about future software margins. So that's what Elon is very, very focused on. Tesla is a profitable company today. They generate positive cash flow, um, but there's no doubt earnings estimates have been impacted by pricing. You know, in terms of what they will do with pricing, I think um, a lot of it is, you know, what's going on in the macro backdrop and what it's what's going on um, re regarding uh, um, interest rates, because most people, whether they lease or finance a car another way, it, you know, they think about it as their monthly cost. And that has certainly been impacted by inflation. So were inflation and interest rates to come down, um, prices could move back up. Tesla's a little bit different than other companies have been um, in the auto, automotive market. Um, they make more frequent price changes. And if you've looked over the years, they've raised prices and they've lowered prices. So in period of times where we have greater demand, I think you can expect Tesla to raise prices again. And certainly when period of time where their weaker demand or the monthly cost for their consumers will go down, they'll lower prices. But as I said earlier on, I think that the, the bigger thing that's going to happen with Tesla is the continued innovation <coughs> and the continued rollout of vehicles, you know, that will tip the market. So the Cybertruck, I think, will introduce new technologies. I, I think those new technologies, you know, will not only be found in Cybertruck, but will ultimately be found in other, um, you know, vehicles from Tesla. And, and certainly whether it comes in 24 or comes in 25. And if you ask me, I truly don't know now. Um, you know, a lower price vehicle will, will really um, tip the market. And I don't think um, there's another auto manufacturer that's anywhere close to Tesla um, to be able to produce a car that's going to cost twenty dollars to $25,000 and be profitable. And another question relates to EVs. Uh, Marianne asks about a company she's recently discovered called Electrion Wireless. It's an Israeli company that's a provider of wireless charging solutions for electric vehicles. And her question is, how will the war in Israel affect the world deployment of EV infrastructure, if at all? Yeah, I, I don't believe it, it will, because um, when you think about EV infrastructure, um, you think about the semiconductor chips that are inside of these vehicles. You think about the charging infrastructure. Um, there, there's a significant number of suppliers um, that are based, you know, all over the world. Um, we look at the semiconductor supply, automotive supply chain a lot. Um, and so, for example, if, if there's a particular provider um, that's impacted because of, you know, a war, certainly, there's just many other providers. Um, um, and, and so I, I don't, you know, we think a lot about what's going on in Israel. We certainly have investments in some Israeli companies, um, but we don't think it'll have a significant impact on the rollout of EVs in any way.
Okay, great. So in the minute or two left that uh, we have, I want to try and squeeze in a couple more questions. Um, Lawrence uh, is wondering about the semiconductor industry. Uh, when so many of the major companies have their chips made in Taiwan and the geopolitical risks are strong. Um, thoughts on that? Listen, there's no doubt about it. Um, I think big picture in the world that we live in today, um, you know, completely digital world where every device in our life has more semiconductors inside of it. Most devices are now, you know, fully connected. You know, how do you change the temperature in your home? I'm using Nest versus the thermostats that I used, um, you know, when I was a kid. Um, for example, cars, I mean, the semiconductor content in vehicles today is so much greater um, than it, you know, used to be. Certainly EVs are very, very high on the list, but even, you know, modern ICE cars today. So I, I firmly believe that the secular trend in semiconductors are the demand will go as long as basically the eye can see. And we haven't even talked about, you know, things like, you know, we're, we're, yet with regard to semiconductors, the AI demand, computing demand, all of that. Um, semiconductors, however, are a cyclical industry. So you're gonna have the secular driving you, you know, towards the future up into the right, but you'll have ups and downs. And so that's something that any investor needs to think about if they're investing in the semiconductor space. I've written about this publicly. Um, so for example, um, in, in late 2022, um, when semiconductor stocks traded down, people were very worried about the recession, which again, hasn't even happened yet, but still may happen in 24. And we thought semiconductor stock prices got to a very attractive level. We significantly increased um, the weighting in our portfolio and bought some of our favorite names. Great. Taiwan. So I, I want to touch on this because that is absolutely a real issue. Um, yeah. We talk about it and think about it all the time. We do a, a ton of research. I think I mentioned to you just before we got on um, that right before this call, I was talking to another contact, um, a Chinese national. Um, his wife is in Taiwan, spent a lot of time living in China, living in Hong Kong, now lives on the West Coast, um, knows TSMC and the founders of that company very, very well. Um, we spent a large part of our call um, talking about the geopolitics, talking about you know the risk um, to Taiwan. I think that's a long-term risk. Um, I think the short term, we're going to be okay. Um, most Americans, and I don't know who's on this call, we think about our politics and our geopolitics very, very short term. Um, other cultures think much longer term. For example, in you know China. You know, they have five five-year plans, have, you know, a 25-year roadmap of the industries um, that they want to dominate. Um, Chairman Xi, there's no doubt he has designs on Taiwan, but he's playing a long-term game. I don't think anytime soon, um, you know, there's going to be a military invasion of Taiwan. We have a lot of reasons for that. I won't, I won't list them all. Um, I think they would love to have a diplomatic solution, but, you know, um, Taiwan versus Hong Kong, very, very different, right? Hong Kong was, you know, a colony of the Brits where there was an agreement um, to give it back where, you know, Taiwan um, is independent. There's no colonizer who's going to make a deal. I don't believe the Taiwanese people who, you know, may feel very Chinese in terms of their culture want to be, you know, part of, um, you know, the China led by the, you know, the Communist Chinese Party. Um, so I think how that will play is very, very hard to know. So when you're thinking about these type of geopolitics as an investor, um, it's incredibly hard to figure out. 
So um, in the um, technology fund that I run, we do have an investment in TSMC. Um, but the way we think about it is how to size that investment. You know, without the, um, you know, the geopolitical risk, we probably have a larger investment. But given the geopolitical risk, given the strength of that business where, you know, it is, it is effectively a monopoly in making high end chips around the world, the importance of that business, we want to be investors, but we do have a smaller position size because of this geopolitical risk. So that's how I think about things as an, as an investor. There are definitely things in my career that I've seen the geopolitical risk so significant that I decided not to be an investor in a given, you know, company or, or a given country or a given region of the world. So in our last maybe 30 seconds or so, I'm going to give you two questions and you can answer them, uh, hopefully both or either, um, as succinctly as you can. Steve says, if you had to pick one circular growth theme that is the most attractive over the next 10 years, what would it be? And Billy says, I've noticed that EVs have been politicized lately. Are you concerned about the market impact? Um, number one would be AI. Number two would be no. Um, <laughs> The politics, come on, politicians could talk about anything they want. I, I don't even know exactly what angle this particular person has on the politicization, you know, of um, EVs. Um, you know, it's not often that our Congress passes laws. Uh, you know, the IRA that was passed has significant um, incentives for EV adoption, consumer incentives, as well as incentives to the battery uh, manufacturers. That's... Um, going to give uh, you know a, a nice positive boost. However, yes, if you see a change, a major change in government in the next election, could they change those laws and do away with that? Yes. So when we talk about you know Tesla, when we talk to Tesla, they think that they can't depend on any of these incentives. When you have them, they're nice to have, but they want to be differentiated. They want their vehicles to be better and they want their vehicles to be cost competitive to other vehicles without incentives. So the, the politics um oftentimes it, it, it's very much noise you have to think about um legislation and so we've had positive legislation and certainly we'll look at the next election and and look at the risk that we you know you may have you know some of these incentives rolled back um okay very last question i promise um ali asks does baron only offer mutual funds or etfs as well we do not offer etfs we offer mutual funds and we offer also what we call uh, managed accounts. Great. Well, Mike, we're going to have to leave it uh, there. That's all we have time for today. Um, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it as well. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. We hope you can join us again tomorrow. Market Watch reporter Vic Reclitus and his guest Terry Haynes of Washington think tank Pangea Policy will discuss the chaos in the House and much more. Also, our very popular Barron's Level Up series returns to the air on Wednesday. Rashma Kapadia will be speaking with Fidelity's Joanna Rotenberg about avoiding common money mistakes and shoring up your financial security. We'll drop a registration link in the chat and hope to see you there. Thank you for your company. Be well and have a wonderful day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.